invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, it's uh, been pretty graphic here the last few weeks. A couple is, is killed when someone throws a spear through them. A uh, guy gets stabbed and dung comes out. Another guy gets stabbed and his guts come out. Guy gets a, a tent peg driven through his head. Another guy gets his head chopped off and thrown over a wall. Uh, after all of that, we're uh, returning to a little bit more G-rated story this morning. Ruth chapter 1. We'll read the entire chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope... Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest."
I'm assuming that all of us, um, at some point in our lives, have made a really bad decision. Now, as you know, bad decisions come in various shapes and sizes. Uh, A bad decision about a job is a little bit different than a bad decision about a restaurant. Uh, But we have to face the fact that, that all of us, at some point, have made a bad decision. And sometimes those bad decisions have unfortunate consequences. Uh, Sometimes bad decisions bring on upon us things that that we really regret happening because of our bad decision. Uh, We we see something like that this morning here in Ruth chapter 1. And it helps us to answer the question, what do we do when we make a bad decision? Uh, What do we do when life goes in a direction that, that we didn't really anticipate because of our decision? Uh, is, there, is there any hope that anything good can come out of a bad decision that you make? That's what we're going to look at this morning, and there are four things that we want to see as we work our way through this chapter. First of all, there is a bad decision. Uh, then there is a bleak outlook. Then there is a bold faith. And then there is a bitter return, a bad decision, a bleak outlook, a bold faith, and a bitter return. The book of Ruth begins by um, giving us a timestamp. It, it helps to, to set this book in its context. If you look at verse 1, you'll notice two things. First of all, it tells us that, that these events took place in the days when the judges ruled. And secondly, it also tells us this was during a time when there was a famine in the land. Now, now we spent a, a couple weeks in the book of Judges recently, and, and we know that that wasn't really a golden age for God's people. It, it wasn't a, a time when anyone would say, man, we wish it was like it was in the book of Judges. It was a very difficult time. It was a time when Israel continued in persistent sin, specifically persistent idolatry of false gods. And, and because of their sin, God disciplined them. He punished them. In, in fact, at the end of the book of Judges, there's a... There's this statement that, that pretty, pretty much sums up the entire 200-year period of the Judges. The, the very last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a telling statement. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was a time when there was no objective standard of truth. It was a time when there was no objective standard of morality. Just just do whatever you think is right. Sounds exactly like the day in which we live. You do you. You do what you think is right, and I'll do what I think is right, and whatever goes, goes. Now, God had warned his people that there would be consequences to their disobedience. He had warned them what would happen if they turned away from him and followed after false gods. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. says, Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. 
Deuteronomy 28, verses 17 and 18. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. The idea is that there would be consequences to their sin. That, that specifically God would send a famine upon them if, if they continued to commit spiritual adultery and follow after false gods, that they would struggle to, to produce enough food to even stay alive. And that's exactly what we find happening here in Ruth chapter 1. There is a famine in the land. And again, it's a reminder to us that sin has consequences. The alcoholic may die from liver disease. The, the porn addict may ruin his marriage and lose his family. The person who can't control their temper may alienate all of their close friends. And, and here, Israel's sin has brought famine upon the land. And it's at this point that we're introduced to this man by the name of Elimelech. Elimelech children has a wife. Her name is Naomi. And he has two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, there are some, some interesting uh, meanings to their names. I, I think it's intended to say something to us. First of all, the name Elimelech means God is my king. God is the one who rules over me. I, I listen to what he says. That's basically what Elimelech name, Elimelech's name means. And yet here's Elimelech, and, and rather than staying in the promised land, rather than staying among God's covenant people, rather than staying there and crying out to God in repentance, rather than crying out for God's mercy, what does Elimelech decide to do? He takes his family out of Israel, and, and notice he goes to Moab. Moab is a place that was known for seducing God's people into sexual immorality and false worship. Secondly, notice the names of Elimelech's sons. Malon means sickly. Kilion means frail. Probably not, you know, the best names to give your children. This one is sickly and this one is frail. But I think these names are meant to tell us what kind of time it was in which they were living. It was a horrible time. Children, imagine if today you went home from church and you went to the refrigerator to find something to eat. You're really hungry. You get home from church and, and you walk in the kitchen. You open the refrigerator door and there's nothing in there. Imagine tomorrow morning if mom or dad said to you, I don't know what we're going to eat today. We, we don't have any food. That's the setting. That's the situation in Israel. It's a famine has hit the land. The setting is very dark. And, and rather than crying out to God, God help us, Elimelech takes his family and he heads off to a pagan land. He, he heads off to a place that was known for being hostile to God's people in order to find food. Now, before we're too hard on Elimelech, we need to think about our own lives here for a moment. Uh, we look at Elimelech and we go, you know, what a stupid decision. How dumb this was to do this. Why, why would this man intentionally leave the promised land and, and go to a pagan place that was known for its extreme hostility towards the worship of the one true God. 
Elimelech, didn't, didn't you get it? Didn't you understand the, 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 that by separating yourself from God's covenant people, you were putting yourself in a very, very dangerous position? Well, are there times when maybe we've been tempted to do something similar? Maybe it's thinking about, you know, moving to another city in another state, even though we we find out before we go that there's no good, faithful, gospel-centered church in that area, and yet we're going to go anyway. Maybe it's allowing our children to be involved in, in sports that will require them to play on Sundays so that they won't be able to attend church. It's a very dangerous thing to to remove ourselves or withdraw ourselves and our families from God's covenant people, and yet that's what Elimelech is doing. And so now we see this bleak outlook. Elimelech takes his family, they head off to Moab, and what happens? Elimelech dies. He dies. And now you've got a widow and her two sons, we're not told how old they are, but eventually we know that they're old enough to get married, and, and they're trying to survive in a foreign land. And at a certain point, Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, get married. But, but notice something. Children, notice that they don't go back to the promised land. They don't say, hey, let's go back to our, our people. Let's go back to God's covenant people, and, and let's find spouses there. They don't do that. They, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Here's another wrong decision. Wrong decision number one was the decision to leave the promised land and go to Moab. Wrong decision number two is the decision to marry pagan women. You you know, you don't really need me to tell you this, but you know the Bible is very clear on more than one occasion about the problems that arise from marrying someone outside the faith. That typically you marry an unbeliever and, and you will typically not see them rise to your level of interest in spiritual things, but you will often see them bring you down to their disinterest in spiritual things. Now, and I'm not saying that this is the unpardonable sin. I'm not saying that we should shun or, or treat as, as less of a Christian someone who has married an unbeliever, but, but we know that there are often consequences to that. And, and yet, aren't we thankful that, that, that God works good in our lives in spite of our obedience to him, our disobedience to him? Haven't all of us made bad decisions? Not, not just in terms of who we marry, but haven't all of us made a bad decision or gone in a direction that, that we knew wasn't right? We knew it wasn't the correct thing to do, and yet God still used that for our good. Now, that doesn't mean that we should intentionally disobey God's commands. That doesn't mean that that we should do whatever we want and and we just kind of fall back on, well, God said he he will work good out of this. But it does mean that when our life goes in a direction we hadn't hoped for, when we look back and we realize we made a decision that wasn't honoring to the Lord, God doesn't say to us, well, you blew it. That's it. I'm done with you. Brothers and sisters, we, we can believe God's promise that he does indeed 
work all things for the good of those who love him. We, we like to put that in cards. We would like to put that in an email or a text to someone. God works all things for good. But do we believe it? Do we live our lives in light of that promise, knowing that, that whatever bad decision we may have made, that God will use even that ultimately for our good? We must trust him. Well, Naomi's two sons marry these two Moabite women, and, and, and surely I think Naomi's thinking, my sons will now have children of their own, and, and this will allow the family name to continue on. I will have family to take care of me in my old age. But you notice what happens after living in Moab for 10 years, which I think is an indictment of them being comfortable living in a pagan place. It's like they, they really set down roots in, in Paganville. Both of her sons die. And notice they don't have any children. And, and now things look really bleak. They look completely hopeless. No sons, they're dead. No grandchildren. Just Naomi and her two pagan daughters-in-law, three widows. Now in that culture, in that day, and in the midst of a famine, this could very well mean that they will starve to death, that they won't survive. And now we have a bold faith. At a certain point, Naomi gets some good news. She hears that there's food. There's food back in the promised land. What, what's probably happened is the, the pattern, again, that we see throughout the book of Judges. You remember the pattern. Uh, God's people fall into sin. They fall into idolatry. God disciplines because, them because of their sin. In this case, he sends famine. God's people cry out to him in repentance, and God delivers his people. That, that same thing has probably happened here. That The famine has been lifted. God has graciously blessed his people with food. And, and say, so Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law, and she says, um, we need to go back to Judah. There's food. We, we can eat again. But, but notice, as they start to head back, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law, and, and she says to them, you should go back to Moab. You shouldn't come with me. Now, on the one hand, we can understand this. We, we can understand that you know, it would be pretty difficult for these Moabite girls, women, to, to adjust to life in Israel, right? They had their lives in Moab. They had their gods in Moab. And, and now they're, they're going to be outsiders. They're going to be widows. Probably not a whole lot of prospects for getting married again. And so on the one hand, you can see why Naomi would say, hey, go back. Go back to your home. But on the other hand, you know, shouldn't Naomi want Orpah and Ruth to go with her to the promised land? Shouldn't she be thinking, you know, this, this is the place where my daughters-in-law need to be. They, they need to be in a place there where they will be taught about the one true God and, and where they will be taught about salvation through faith in him. This is where they need to be. They need to be with me. They need to be in the promised land. Why would she want her daughters-in-law to return to paganism? Why, why would she want her daughters-in-law to go back to their false gods? You know, we all, we all have people in our lives who, who don't know the one true God. Maybe it's a, a family member. Uh, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone you work with. Maybe it's someone we interact with on a regular basis. 
shouldn't it be our desire to, to bring them into the place where they will hear the, the only message that brings true hope and true meaning to life? Shouldn't it be our desire, if we are Christians, to, to say to people that we know who don't know Christ, come, come to church with me. Come, come and, and hear about what God has done for us to save us from our sins and to, to give us eternal life. And yet Naomi wants to send these women away. And if you're like me, you would have to confess that there have been times when you have had a, a callous disregard for the souls of those around you. We all see it in our lives. We all see those times when, when we know we should care, but we don't. Where we know we should say something, but we don't. And in that connection, you know, aren't you thankful that you have a Savior who has paid for all of your sins? Not just some of them, not just the ones before you were a Christian. Jesus died for the sins of Christians too, didn't he? thankful we have a Savior who paid for all of our sins. All, all of the times I've kept my mouth shut instead of saying something about Jesus. All of the times that, that I have been apathetic and callous toward the, the plight of lost people. All of the times I have cared more about my own needs than the needs of others. Jesus paid it all. Well, eventually, Orpah listens. And, and to me, it's a sad scene. Orpah turns around, and she's going to go back. She's going to go back to her false gods. She goes back to Moab, but, but Ruth doesn't listen. Ruth has a, a bold faith given to her by God. And notice verse 16. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. This is an incredible statement. We, we know this story really well, most of us. But isn't it a wonderful thing when you see someone pulled out of the flames of hell to believe in the one true God? Isn't it an incredible thing to see someone who was worshiping false gods turn to the one true God? You know, the main god of the um, Moabite people was named Chemosh. Chemosh, um, it was believed that, that one of the ways that you could earn the favor of Chemosh was to offer up one of your children as a sacrifice. You, you'd kill him in order to earn Chemosh's favor. In, in fact, we, we read about this in, in the book of 2 Kings. There's a time in 2 Kings where there's a war going on between Israel and Moab. And, and uh, the Moabite king, he, he looks at the battle and he goes, you know what, we're losing. I, I, need, to get, I need to get Chemosh back on my side. And, and so the king of Moab takes his oldest son and he offers him up as a burnt offering so that Chemosh will get back on his side. 
Ruth grew up worshiping that God. Ruth didn't just grow up in, you know, just general unbelief. Yeah, you know, in God we trust. It's on our coins. That's fine. Um, you know, this kind of, I, I, you know, if, if church is good for you, that's fine, but it's not for me. That's not how she grew up. She grew up worshiping these, these evil, demonic, false gods. And, and now she, she turns her back on this false god and she believes in the one true God. And, and we should read this account and we should be astounded at God's grace. You see, as we know, Ruth, Ruth didn't make this decision because she was smarter than the other Moabites. She, she didn't make this decision because she was better than the Moabites who didn't believe. This was the work of God's sovereign grace in her life, causing her to turn to Yahweh in true faith. And that's true for every one of us here this morning. This is you and me. We, we don't believe because we're better. We don't, we don't believe because we're smarter. We, we believe only because God chose to give us life and to give us the gift of faith that we might embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The bold faith that God gave Ruth. One final thing, and that is a bitter return. Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem after all the years away, Naomi has returned. And the, and the women in, in Bethlehem see her, and, and they, they, they say, can this really be Naomi? Naomi, is that you? And, and notice what Naomi does. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. I don't want to be called Naomi. I, I want you to call me Mara. Children, Naomi means sweet or pleasant Mara means bitter. Don't call me sweet anymore. Call me bitter. You go, why the name change? Why, why, does, why does Naomi want to be called bitter from now on? I think very simply because she's bitter about her circumstances. She, she says, I left here full. I left here with a husband and two sons, and, and now they're all dead, and I've got nothing. Well, first of all, that's not entirely true. She, she has Ruth. She has a daughter-in-law whom the Lord has brought out of paganism into true faith. Shouldn't, shouldn't that thrill Naomi's heart? What a, what a wonderful testimony Ruth was to, to God's saving grace. Shouldn't that be what, what Naomi is focused on? It's like some regret in life that we have. Maybe, maybe we married someone we, we shouldn't have married. They weren't a believer. They, they weren't a godly person. But out of that marriage, the Lord blesses you with children. That's a gift from God that we should be thankful for. Or we take a job in another area and, and you know, later on we, we realize, ah, we probably shouldn't have made that move. But, but when you move to that new area, your, your son or your daughter marries a godly spouse. That's a gift from God. Naomi can't see this. She, 
She can't see how God has worked all of this for her good. First of all, it was for her good in bringing her back to the promised land. I mean, what would have happened? What would have happened if Elimelech had lived? What would have happened if her two sons had lived? It it was already apparent that they were becoming very comfortable in in Moab. They lived there for 10 years. They probably would have stayed in Moab. They, They might even have become very comfortable worshiping Chemosh and the other false gods. And, and second, now she has a believing daughter-in-law that she didn't have before. You know, when you look at it from that perspective, it, it's incredible how the Lord used all of this for Naomi's good. But instead, all she can do is complain about God's providence. All she can do is complain about, this is what God has done to me. This is my lot in life. What's your response to God's providence? What's your response to the circumstances in your life this morning? Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're dealing with health concerns. Maybe it's a family relationship. Maybe it's work struggles, financial struggles. What's your response? The Heidelberg Catechism gives us a a very helpful answer to the subject of providence. The question in the Heidelberg is, how does the knowledge of God's providence help us? It shows us, first of all, that that theology matters. Theology is, is where the rubber hits the road. How does knowing God's providence help you? How does knowing that God is in control of everything in this world and in your life help you? Here's the answer. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. That should have been Naomi's response. That should be my response to God's providence. But instead, she says, just call me bitter from now on. Brothers and sisters, there there will be things, and you all know this, that, that God will bring into your life that will disappoint you. There will be the the hard providences of life. Things that make you see, say, um, I, I just don't see how this is working for the best. I don't see how this is the best thing. Keep believing God's promise that, that he works all things, all things, for the good of those who love him. Naomi should have seen that, and, and we should see it too, and we pray that God would give us the grace to see it better. Two things as we close this morning and and prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. First of all, I I think that we would all have to say that that more often than we care to admit, we are a lot like Naomi. We find bitterness and anger maybe creeping into our hearts. We find ourselves maybe thinking, maybe we'd never say this, but, but we would think when we're alone, Lord, why? 
Why'd you allow this to happen? This isn't what I want. This isn't what I need. Lord, what are you doing? And, and our anger or disappointment or frustration with our circumstances, it just festers in our hearts. What, what do we do when Naomi creeps into our hearts? What do we do when we say, just call me bitter from now on? Well, think about Ruth's family line. Ruth had a great-grandson whose name was King David. And from King David, you all know, came Jesus. The point is that when we see bitterness and anger and maybe even jealousy welling up in our hearts... We, we need to look to Ruth's descendant. We need to look to Jesus. As this table reminds us, Jesus went to the cross, didn't he? He gave his body, he shed his blood so that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. And so when bitterness arises, the solution is not to say, I, I need to try harder to be happy. The solution is to keep looking to Christ. Keep resting in his perfect and finished work for you and keep crying out to him, Lord Jesus, cleanse me from my bitter heart. Don't let bitterness or jealousy or anger creep in. Wash my heart. Secondly, the, the last thing, our passage is a reminder this morning that the good news of Jesus is for anyone who believes in him. You know, it's interesting to me that throughout the book of Ruth, you, you find this, you, you might have seen this as we read chapter one this morning. Ruth is often referred to not just as Ruth. She's referred to as Ruth the Moabite over and over and over. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. I think it's there for a reason. I think it's there to remind us of God's grace to outsiders. It's a reminder that God's kingdom is made up of people from all different backgrounds, even pagan worship. And so this morning, if you don't think you're good enough, if you say, well, I didn't come from the right family, I wasn't raised the right way, I've gone astray. I've done my own thing. Surely God doesn't want me in his kingdom. If you're tempted to say that, if you don't think you have the right family tree, if you don't think you measure up, let Ruth be a reminder to you that the good news of salvation is for all who believe in Jesus. That's why Jesus came. He came for the outsiders came for sinners like us. And, and that's what this table is telling us this morning. As we come to the table this morning, the Lord is not only reminding us of, of what Jesus did, but he's also strengthening us in his gospel promise that, that as surely as you touch that bread and, and feel it, and as surely as you smell that wine, as surely as you put that bread and wine to your mouth, so surely 
is your Savior paid for all of your sins. Great story, great passage, great reminder of God's grace. May we rejoice this morning with overwhelming joy at what Jesus has done for us. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for all that we read and, and, and understand here in this opening chapter of Ruth. We thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus and for your grace to us. We thank you that in spite of our sin, in spite of our failures and weakness, in spite of our bad decisions, we have the perfect Savior in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to continue to look to him and help us to rejoice, Lord, in, in the amazing grace that you have shown to us. Bless us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Use it not only to stir up in us a reminder of Jesus' death, but use it as well to strengthen our faith so that we might go out into this dark world and live for you and proclaim the glorious good news that Jesus saves. We pray this in his name.